Chapter Seven of Nature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Nature, by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Chapter Seven. Spirit. It is essential to a true theory of nature and of man that it should contain somewhat progressive. Uses that are exhausted or that may be, and facts that end in the statement, cannot be all that is true of this brave lodging wherein man is harbored, and wherein all his faculties find appropriate and endless exercise. And all the uses of nature admit of being summed in one, which yields the activity of man an infinite scope. Through all its kingdoms, to the suburbs and outskirts of things, it is faithful to the cause whence it had its origin. It always speaks of spirit. It suggests the absolute. It is a perpetual effect. It is a great shadow pointing always to the sun behind us. The aspect of nature is devout. Like the figure of Jesus, she stands with bended head and hands folded upon the breast. The happiest man is he who learns from nature the lesson of worship. Of that ineffable essence which we call spirit, he that thinks most will say least. We can foresee God in the course, and as it were, distant phenomena of matter, but when we try to define and describe himself, both language and thought desert us, and we are as helpless as fools and savages. That essence refuses to be recorded in propositions, but when man has worshipped him intellectually, the noblest ministry of nature is to stand as the apparition of God. It is the organ through which the universal spirit speaks to the individual, and strives to lead back the individual to it. When we consider spirit, we see that the views already presented do not include the whole circumference of man. We must add some related thoughts. Three problems are put by nature to the mind. What is matter? Whence is it? And where to? The first of these questions only, the ideal theory answers. Idealism said, matter is a phenomenon, not a substance. Idealism acquaints us with the total disparity between the evidence of our own being and the evidence of the world's being. The one is perfect, the other incapable of any assurance. The mind is a part of the nature of things. The world is a divine dream, from which we may presently awake to the glories and certainties of day. Idealism is a hypothesis to account for nature by other principles than those of carpentry and chemistry. Yet, if it only denied the existence of matter, it does not satisfy the demands of the spirit. It leaves God out of me. It leaves me in the splendid labyrinth of my own perceptions, to wander without end. Then the heart resists it, because it balks the affections in denying substantive being to men and women. Nature is so pervaded with human life that there is something of humanity in all, and in every particular. But this theory makes nature foreign to me, and does not account for that consanguinity which we acknowledge to it. Let it stand, then, in the present state of our knowledge, merely as a useful introductory hypothesis serving to apprise us of the eternal distinction between the soul and the world. But when following the invisible step of thought, we come to inquire, whence is matter, and where to, many truths arise to us out of the recesses of consciousness. We learn that the highest is present to the soul of man, that the dread universal essence, which is not wisdom or love or beauty or power, but all in one and each entirely, is that for which all things exist, and that by which they are. That spirit creates, that behind nature, throughout nature, spirit is present, 
one and not compound. It does not act upon us from without, that is, in space and time, but spiritually, or through ourselves. Therefore that spirit, that is, the supreme being, does not build up nature around us, but puts it forth through us, as the life of the tree puts forth new branches and leaves at the pores of the old. As a plant upon the earth, so man rests upon the bosom of God. He is nourished by unfailing fountains, and draws at his need inexhaustible power. Who can set bounds to the possibilities of man? Once inhale the upper air, being admitted to behold the absolute natures of justice and truth, and we learn that man has access to the entire mind of the Creator, he is himself the Creator in the finite. This view, which admonishes me where the sources of wisdom and power lie, and points to virtue as to the golden key which opes the palace of eternity, carries upon its face the highest certificate of truth, because it animates me to create my own world to the purification of my soul. The world proceeds from the same spirit as the body of man. It is a remoter and inferior incarnation of God, a projection of God in the unconscious. But it differs from the body in one important respect. It is not like that, now subjected to human will. Its serene order is inviolable by us. It is therefore to us the present expositor of the divine mind. It is a fixed point whereby we may measure our departure. As we degenerate, the contrast between us and our house is more evident. We are as much strangers in nature as we are aliens from God. We do not understand the notes of birds. The fox and the deer run away from us. The bear and tiger rend us. We do not know the uses of more than a few plants, as corn and the apple, the potato and the vine. Is not the landscape, every glimpse of which hath a grandeur, a face of him? Yet this may show us what discord is between man and nature, for you cannot freely admire a noble landscape if laborers are digging in the field hard by. The poet finds something ridiculous in his delight, until he is out of the sight of men. End of chapter 7